0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter uh, 7, John chapter 7 for our time of study in the Word this morning. Um, We're doing a series through the Gospel of John. We've been away from this series for uh, a couple weeks uh, now, but we're getting back to it uh, this morning and the title of the message uh, is Hot Takes on Jesus. Uh, hot takes on Jesus, or maybe a fuller and better title would be um, wading through some hot takes on Jesus. We're going to be sorting through uh, several hot takes on, on Jesus in our passage uh, today as we look at John 7, verses 40 through 53. And if you're wondering what a hot take is, um, it's a strong opinion expressed on a topic of great interest that many are likely to find controversial. And what we've already discovered is that John chapter 7 is filled with several hot takes on Jesus, and we'll see even more uh, talked about in our passage today. In John 7, we see people arriving at a wide variety of opinions about Jesus, uh, and a fact that may leave us asking the question, if people were arriving then at so many contrary opinions about Jesus when he was on the earth revealing himself, then how can we ever hope to arrive at a right view of him, especially when there are so many opinions about Jesus today? Today. But our passage today provides an ingenious answer to that question and addresses that need. So if you want to have a right opinion about Jesus, the passage that we're going to look at today is going to help you a lot. Now, because we've been out of John for a while, I'm going to take just a little bit extra time to review to kind of set the stage, because what we've seen thus far in John 7 is relevant to what we'll encounter in our passage today. Uh, the setting for the text that we're going to look at today is uh, the Jerusalem Temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. Before Jesus even arrived at this feast in Jerusalem, we were told in verse 11 that the Jews or the Jewish religious leaders were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? These men wanted to know where Jesus was so that they could arrest him and ultimately have him killed. And they've wanted him killed ever since John chapter 5 when Jesus healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Among the pilgrims gathered at this feast, there were other opinions that we have seen expressed about Jesus. In verse 12 of John 7, we read that some were saying, he is a good man, while others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. It is in this environment that Jesus makes his appearance and begins to teach publicly leaving the religious leaders who hate him blown away by his knowledge. In verse 15, they're left asking, how has this man become learned having never been educated? It is at this point that Jesus states three truths in verses 16 through 18. Number one, my teaching is the Father's. Number two, the surrendered person will know the truth about my teaching. And number three, I am true, and there is no unrighteousness in me. It is then that Jesus asked the religious leaders why they are seeking to kill him, a question that causes some of the people who are gathered on this occasion to arrive at yet another opinion about him. In verse 20, they say to him, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Well, Jesus ignores their question and challenges the religious leaders for finding fault with his healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda back in John 5. And he argues from the law of Moses as to why that healing on the Sabbath was perfectly lawful, and he questions why they would be angry with him for making a man whole on the Sabbath. Well, the pilgrims that are listening in hear what Jesus says, and they observe the stunned speechlessness of the religious leaders, so starting in verse 25, they say, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill, Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? But even these people asking these questions don't think that Jesus is the Messiah. They say in verse 27, however, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. So they conclude that he can't be the Messiah. In response, Jesus basically says, and I'm going to read this the way that many commentators would suggest that verse 28 should be read, uh, with the first sentence being a question rather than a statement. Verse 28, we'll read it this way Jesus says, Do you know me? Do you really know me and where I am from? I have not come from myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So he's just called them out on their ignorance. And after hearing these statements from Jesus, these people are now ticked at him. And John tells us in verse 30 that now even they were seeking to seize him. Or have him arrested and yet the text says no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come but wonderfully in contrast to these people in verse 31 john tells us that many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying when the christ comes He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And notice the text says, many, many of the crowd are believing in him. Well, in verse 32, we're told that the Pharisees hear many of the crowd speaking this way, expressing belief in Jesus, and they panic so much so that verse 32 tells us that they sent officers to seize or arrest him. Well, somehow Jesus exits the scene at this moment without getting arrested. But on the final day of the feast, Jesus appears again and he takes his stand in some prominent place and he cries out. And look at what he says in verses 37 and 38. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me. As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is a staggering invitation and a staggering promise. Write down the reference, Jeremiah 2.13. Jehovah in that passage speaks of himself as the fountain of living waters that the people of Israel have forsaken and here in these verses in john 7 jesus is essentially announcing to everyone i am the fountain of living waters and he invites them to come to him and drink this means that what jesus is saying in these verses is not just messiah talk it's jehovah talk and in speaking these words jesus is telling everyone exactly who he is and exactly what they must do with him and it's what you must do with Jesus as well he tells everyone to do three things regarding him to come to him to drink of him to believe in him as Jehovah and as the thirst quenching water that we need and he promises to all who do that That their thirst will be satisfied to the point that from their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, that's clear revelation from Jesus, right? You can't get any more clear than this. And given that clarity, one might think that everyone would just fall into line at this point and come to a right appraisal of Jesus But this is not what happens. In fact, in the verses we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see people giving voice to four responses or four lines of response to what Jesus has just said. And that's how we're going to break down our study of the text this morning. Four lines of response to Jesus' invitation for them to believe in him as the soul-satisfying water they need, as Jehovah the fountain of living water. Response number one, you can fill in the blank if you have the hard copy notes. Some, they hear what Jesus has just said and give voice to their belief that Jesus is the prophet. Some give voice to their belief that Jesus is the prophet. Observe what John says in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, When they heard these words, in other words, the words Jesus just spoke, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. In other words, this is the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18, whom God promised would come. And you can write down the reference, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Let me just read some of those verses to you. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And about this prophet, God goes on to say in verses 18 to 19, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Strong words there. A wonderful prophecy. And in the centuries that followed these words being spoken in Deuteronomy 18, there were many prophets that arose and prophesied to the people of Israel But none of them reached the stature of Moses. So the people kept looking for this greater prophet to come. As time went on, many of the Jewish people came to believe that this prophet would be the Messiah himself. And the people here in John 7 are hearing what Jesus has just said, and they're coming to the conclusion that Jesus must be the Moses-like prophet that God foretold would come. And this conclusion makes a lot of sense to them. After all, it was Moses in the wilderness who gave the children of Israel water from a rock. And Jesus' language here in John 7 makes them realize that he must be the long-awaited prophet who would be like Moses in that sense too providing them living water to satisfy their thirst. And notice how sure they are in this opinion. They're not thinking this might be the prophet like Moses. They're saying this is certainly the prophet. For most of the people saying this, this brings them right to the edge of saying that Jesus is the Messiah without them coming right out and explicitly saying that. But there were others in this crowd who weren't afraid to use explicit messianic language in voicing their response to Jesus' words. And this brings us to the second line of response to Jesus' announcement of himself essentially as Jehovah and his invitation for them to believe in him as the sole satisfying water that they need Response number two, some say that Jesus is the Christ while others express their disagreement. Some say that Jesus is the Christ while others express their disagreement. Notice what John says in verse 41. Others were saying, this is the Christ. These people were not necessarily disagreeing with those who spoke of Jesus as the prophet, but the language they're wanting to use is the more exalted language of Jesus as the Christ. And keep in mind that the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, which means anointed one. The one anointed by God to be the long-awaited king of Israel, the messianic figure who will be their savior and save them from all oppression. The people expressing this opinion here might have been among those who were already said to be believing in Jesus back in verse 31, or maybe This group represents a fresh batch of believers. Either way, they hear what Jesus has invited them to do and what that must mean about who he is to come to him and to drink of him and believe in him. They've heard his promise that from their belly will flow rivers of living water if they believe in him. And they conclude that this invitation and this promise is coming from none other than the Messiah himself. And they're bold enough in their opinion to speak that out loud. But it turns out that as they are speaking their opinion out loud, some of the people they're speaking this opinion to are arriving at the opposite opinion about Jesus. As John continues in verse 41, he says, look at the text. Still others were saying Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And we read these words and want to scream, right? So these people are just sure that Jesus can't be the Christ. You and I know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Because we learn in Luke's gospel that Joseph and Mary had to travel there from their hometown of Nazareth for the census, and this is where Jesus was born. We also learn from the gospel of Luke and Matthew that Jesus was of the lineage of David. But these people simply know Jesus as being from Nazareth in Galilee, because that was where he grew up. That's where Joseph and Mary lived at the time, and because Galilee is the place where Jesus did most of his public ministry. So on one level, these people are thinking correctly. The Old Testament scripture really did teach that the Messiah would come from the descendants of David. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Beginning in verse 12, God speaks to David and says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 16, God says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established for ever. In addition to promises like that, the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, taught that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So these people who are speaking right now in John 7 are, are right on both of these accounts, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and come from the town of Bethlehem The problem is that they don't know that Jesus is actually of the lineage of David and that he was actually born in Bethlehem. And they don't seem all that curious to inquire and come to learn more about Jesus. They seem to be assuming that they know everything they need to know about Jesus. To give voice to their confident opinion about him here that, yeah, there's no way he can be the Messiah. Observe what John says beginning in verse 43, so a division, the Greek word translated division is schisma. So a schism occurred in the crowd because of him. And the fact that a division is occurring tells us that there was no one view of Jesus that is prevailing and taking hold. Some are saying that Jesus was the prophet. Others are saying, no, he's the Christ, while others are saying there's no way that he can be the Christ because he's a Galilean. Jesus could not have revealed himself and spoken with greater clarity than what he has done throughout this chapter and even now on this final day of the feast. So it's not his fault in that sense. It's not for lack of clarity that the people are now so divided. This division among the crowd is the result of the fact that some people are being regenerated by God to believe the truth about Jesus and some were not. So their differing views of Jesus actually reveal more about themselves than they reveal about Jesus. And look at John's language very carefully here. In verse 43, John says, "...so a division occurred in the crowd because of him." These people were probably united, no doubt, on a bunch of other things. They were definitely all united ethnically as Jews and in their attendance at this feast of tabernacles. And they were probably unified on a thousand other things. But now Jesus shows up and reveals himself. And these people who may have been unified before are now divided because of him. This is what Jesus does. He brings division. In some cases, he'll bring division in families. As a child may reject the Muslim faith of their parents and begin to embrace Jesus as the Messiah or as a wife who may have once been united with her husband and unbelief is now following Jesus and believing in him. Write down the reference, Luke 12, verses 51 to 53, where Jesus actually predicted that he would bring this kind of division. In Luke 12, verse 51, he says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You see, guys, all unity is not good. People being unified in unbelief, that's a bad kind of unity. People being united in a false religion is a bad unity. But when Jesus shows up and begins to reveal himself and call people to himself, a division occurs between those who believe in him and those who don't And such division is God's plan, and it's far better than the unity in evil that preceded Jesus' arrival. On the flip side, it's wonderful to see how Jesus takes formerly divided people who are now believing in Jesus and wonderfully unifies them, right? People who once hated each other, they're now brothers and sisters in the Lord, united in Christ. But ultimately, guys, the human race is divided into two categories, the children of God and the children of the devil. And when Jesus shows up, you can begin to see who is who by how they respond to him. Speaking of division, there were some people in this scene that we're in right now in John 7 who who might have been somewhat casual and dismissive in their rejection of Jesus as the Christ but there are others who are quite passionate in their rejection of him and even rage against him and this brings us to the third line of response that we see in this text A third response to Jesus' revelation of himself as Jehovah and his invitation for his audience to believe in him as the soul-satisfying water they need. Number three, some want to seize, or you can write the word arrest. Some want to seize Jesus but are too awestruck to touch him. Observe what John says, in the, um, in the verse here, he says, Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Obviously, some people don't think he's the Messiah. In fact, they judge him in the moment to be guilty of blasphemy, so they want him arrested so that he can be put away But even those who want him arrested lack the courage to do it themselves. As John says here, no one laid hands on him. And the no one even includes the trained temple police officers that the Pharisees had sent to arrest Jesus earlier in verse 32 of this chapter. Observe what John says in verse 45. These officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees and they, the chief priest and the Pharisees, said to them, why did you not bring him? So they notice that these police officers don't have Jesus in their custody and they're saying, we sent you on an assignment to arrest Jesus and to bring him to us and here you are coming back to us without him. Why didn't you arrest him and bring him to us like we instructed you to do? Well, look at the officer's reply in verse 46. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. I love what the commentator Carl Laney says about these officers, saying that these men went to arrest Jesus but they were the ones who ended up being arrested by Jesus' words, so much so that they couldn't bring themselves to lay hold of Jesus. And I think, guys, we should really appreciate the honesty of these police officers here. They could have easily offered some other explanation that would have been less self-incriminating. They could have said, well, you know, we tried, but we just couldn't find Jesus alone. There was just no opportunity to arrest him. They could have said, "Ah, we were afraid of the people because they were always around him. But they don't offer any of these excuses. Instead, they transparently admit (laughs) that they are blown away by the words that Jesus is speaking. And they're saying more than that, too. Notice again what they say in verse 46. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. In other words, never has someone who is a mere man spoken the way that this man speaks. Not Moses, nor Elijah, nor David, nor Isaiah, nor any of you religious leaders. No mere mortal has ever spoken the way this man speaks. That's what they're saying. And these officers had to know that what they are saying here would bring the wrath of the rulers against them. But to their credit, they say it anyway. And observe the religious leaders' response in verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? They are saying, don't tell us that you too have been deceived so as to think that Jesus is something more than a mere man. And what follows, guys, is utterly fascinating as we see how these Pharisees try to argue these officers out of their exalted opinion of Jesus as more than a mere man. First of all, in verse 48, they say to these officers, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? This is a rhetorical question, guys. They're not asking for information here. This is a rhetorical question for the purpose of convincing these officers that Jesus is not the Messiah because the expected answer to this question is no. None of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in Jesus, which is supposed to convince these officers that Jesus is not some exalted being that they should be afraid to arrest. What these religious leaders are engaging in is the argument from authority fallacy. They're pointing to themselves as the ultimate experts and saying, None of us believe in Jesus, therefore Jesus can't be the Messiah. What kind of argument is that? Yeah, a bad argument, amen. What they're really saying is we are the experts here, so trust our opinion of Jesus more than what your own eyes and ears are telling you. I'm sure these officers are hearing these Pharisees saying these words and they're thinking to themselves, you may not be believing in Jesus, but many of the people are believing in Jesus. And sure enough, these Pharisees, they have a ready explanation for that. And it's here that they resort to the ad hominem argument. In verse 49, they say, but this crowd? This crowd of people who think Jesus is the prophet or the Christ. This crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. This is such a demeaning way for them to refer to the people, referring them to them as essentially a bunch of ignorant and accursed deplorables who don't know the law and who are accursed. Their pronouncement of the crowd containing many believers in Jesus as ignorant of the law and accursed, is probably based on Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, where it says, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. These Pharisees view Jesus as having broken the law when he healed the lame man on the Sabbath. So anyone who's going to choose to believe in Jesus after that is lumped together with him as an accursed lawbreaker. So all in all, their argument, as they're trying to persuade these officers out of their high opinion of Jesus, their argument goes like this. As for all the people who are believing in Jesus, well, they are... A bunch of accursed dimwits, so their opinion doesn't count. As for the religious experts, none of us believe in Jesus. Therefore, he can't be the Messiah. The delicious irony of these religious leaders' argument is that there actually is a religious leader among them who doesn't share their negative opinion of Jesus. And this religious leader is a man named Nicodemus. And this brings us to a fourth line of response to Jesus' revelation of himself as Jehovah and his invitation for people to believe in him as the sole satisfying water they need Response number four, Nicodemus counsels the Jewish leaders to understand Jesus better before judging him. Nicodemus counsels the Jewish leaders to understand Jesus better before judging him. These Pharisees think that no one among them has believed in Jesus, (laughs) Little do they know that there is one among them who, at the very least, is on his way to faith in Jesus. We learn in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee, which means he, he was a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin. We know from John 3 that Nicodemus sought Jesus out, and he actually confessed to Jesus that he believed that God was with him in a very special way. And in response, Jesus didn't say thank you. He just spoke some hard truth to Nicodemus that Nicodemus needed to hear, like telling him that he needed to be born again. So Nicodemus, we saw him back in John 3. We see him now here in John 7. And if you keep reading John's gospel into John chapter 19, You will see Nicodemus again and see evidence that Nicodemus obviously became a believer in Jesus as he involved himself in giving Jesus a respectful burial in the tomb after his crucifixion. But as for what Nicodemus does here in John 7, observe what John says beginning in verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? You can underline the word hears and knows, two very important words here. And the irony here is so thick. Again, these Pharisees have just said no one among them believes in Jesus, yet here's a man who's either on his way to faith in Jesus if he hasn't believed already. And these Pharisees have just written the people off as people who don't know the law, yet here is Nicodemus pointing out to them how they themselves are acting, they're behaving ignorant of the law, they're behaving inconsistently with the law. And Nicodemus has to call them on that and say, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And Nicodemus is exactly right. The law made provision for a man to have his day in court, to be able to defend himself, to plead his case, and to receive a fair and just trial according to the law a man has the right to speak for himself and to defend himself against charges that people may level against him and in the mind of nicodemus this principle applies to jesus as well these religious leaders have already judged jesus they've already determined his sentence they want him killed And Nicodemus is saying that they should not arrive at such judgments until they have given Jesus a fuller hearing and gotten to know him better. This is actually a very shrewd point that Nicodemus is making. In the first place, he's just asking a question. Also, he's not coming right out and announcing that he is a believer in Jesus. And the fact is, he may not be yet at this point. But he is urging them to give Jesus a fair hearing before they rush to judgment against him and go doing something regrettable. He's urging them to delay arriving at a firm conclusion about Jesus until they have heard him out and really come to know the truth about what he's doing, what he's up to. There are some commentators That you'll read who fault nicodemus for not being more bold here in this moment but i don't know that that's being fair to nicodemus think about what nicodemus is really saying here jesus has healed a man on the sabbath and claimed to be from god the father in heaven he has spoken of himself as being equal with God. He's just essentially now in John 7 announced that he's Jehovah. He's the fountain of living waters that can satisfy people's thirst. And if they drink of him and believe in him from their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And these rulers hear Jesus words and look at his actions, and they view him as being guilty of arrogant blasphemy. Nicodemus hears all of that and says, let's hear Jesus out and get to know him better. That's actually a crazy, bold word of advice from Nicodemus, because it not only indicates that he's anxious to hear more from Jesus, But it clearly indicates that he's not having a problem with anything Jesus has said or done at this point that would cause him to conclude that he's not the Messiah and that he should be arrested and killed. Clearly, Nicodemus is open to the prospect of arriving at a positive opinion about Jesus If he has not already, and he gives this counsel to his comrades here, knowing full well that they will not like at all what he has just said, yet he speaks it anyway. And in fact, those that he speaks these words to lash out at him for his advice. In verse 52, the text says, They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. What they are saying to Nicodemus is intended to be an insult. Nicodemus was almost certainly not from Galilee, but they are telling him that he is talking like a backwoods podunk Galilean. whom these rulers had a lowly opinion of anyway. This is another ad hominem argument that is being spoken intended to embarrass Nicodemus and to shut him down. And when they tell Nicodemus to search, what they're telling him is to search the scriptures. And they say, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee, And you see those words, and it's obvious these men are flailing here and even forgetting their own scriptures. In 2 Kings 14, verse 25, their scriptures that they're pointing Nicodemus to speak of a prophet who did arise out of Galilee. And that prophet was a man named Jonah. Jonah. Who was actually from a town that was just a few short miles away from Nazareth in Galilee. And there's also a high likelihood that the prophet Hosea and Nahum came from Galilee as well. Either way, these men hurl these words at Nicodemus, intending them to be a conversation stopper. And it seems that they succeed for Nicodemus Is not quoted here as giving any reply. All we're told in verse 53, according to some Greek manuscripts, is that everyone went to his home. As for Nicodemus, we know where he goes from here. Even after being insulted here for revealing openness on his part, to a positive view of Jesus, he still ends up, by the end of this gospel, manifesting himself boldly as a believer in Jesus, participating in giving Jesus a proper burial in John 19. Evidently, Nicodemus followed his own advice. He followed his own counsel here and continued to give Jesus a fair hearing and sought to understand him better, allowing his knowledge of Jesus and what he was hearing from Jesus to nourish within him a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. Would you have done the same? Is this what you're doing in your life right now? I think John tells us what he tells us in this chapter. It's a very fast-moving chapter where the camera keeps moving from one person to another and opinions are being stated. I think John tells us what he tells us in this chapter in order to give us a clear picture of the variety of opinions about Jesus that people were arriving at about him just six months prior to the Passion Week. And we see a lot of opinions about Jesus spoken in this chapter In fact, let me quickly review them for you. Some say he's a good man. Some say he deceives the people. Some say he has a demon. Still others say that he's a lawbreaker who should be put to death. Others say that he is the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18. Others say that he is the Christ. The officers say that Jesus speaks like someone who's more than a mere man. And then there is Nicodemus who says that Jesus is at the very least, a man who deserves a fair hearing. Among those who disbelieve that Jesus is the Messiah, there's a variety of reasons stated for their disbelief. Some have the notion that no one is supposed to know where the Messiah comes from, and because they know that Jesus has come from Galilee, therefore, they conclude he can't be the Messiah. This is so sad. These individuals have a totally unbiblical idea in their head of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And because Jesus doesn't fit their conception, they conclude that he can't be the Messiah. Then there are others who rightly believe that the Messiah will be of the lineage of David and will come from Bethlehem. But all they know of Jesus is that he hearkens from Galilee. So they conclude, well, he can't be the Messiah. Their knowledge of scripture is right but they are ignorant about jesus and sadly they don't seem curious to want to learn more about jesus they don't even seem open to the possibility that there is more to jesus than what they may know at this moment and then there are the pharisees who want people to reason this way about jesus look to the experts the religious experts the religious elite And realize that none of them believe that Jesus is the Messiah, therefore he can't be the Messiah. We also see in this chapter some expressed opinions that people have, not just about Jesus, but about those who do think highly of Jesus. The Pharisees look at the people in the crowd who are believing in Jesus and say, well, they're just accursed and ignorant of the law, and they view the arresting officers who are blown away by Jesus' words and think that Jesus must be more than a mere man, and they call them deceived. And these leaders look at Nicodemus, who seems open to hearing more from Jesus, and they insult him as a Galilean simply because he suggested that Jesus deserves a fair hearing. Guys, all of these kinds of things were happening here in John 7 when Jesus was on earth and revealing himself in the flesh through his words and actions with crystal clarity. And these very kinds of things are still happening today, right? So how do we arrive at a true view of Jesus? There are many people who would love to tell you how to view Jesus. They would love for you to look to them to tell you how to view Jesus. And there are people today who will try to embarrass you out of a right and biblical view of Jesus. The atheist Bill Maher once said, and I quote, I believed in Santa Claus and the fairy godmother. Of course, I believed in a virgin birth and that a guy lived in a whale and a woman came from a rib. But then something happened that made me doubt all of it. I graduated sixth grade. What is that? What kind of argument is that? trying to embarrass you. It's an ad hominem argument, trying to embarrass you out of believing what the Bible teaches. In his book, The God Delusion, the anti-theist Richard Dawkins says, and I quote, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. What kind of argument is that? The goal is to embarrass you from believing the truth about Jesus, and such people would be happy to tell you how they view Jesus, and they would want you to look to them. The truth is, if you read literature that's out there and listen to people nowadays, there are so many opinions about Jesus, thousands of them. Napoleon. Bonaparte said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus is no mere man. Should we listen to Napoleon? Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Maybe we should listen to him. The former president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, spoke about Jesus and said, and I quote, Jesus was the first socialist unquote. John Lennon once famously said, and I quote, Jesus was okay. Christopher Hitchens said, Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. Years ago, I was listening to a talk radio program where the question for the day was, who was Jesus? And there were people who called in who were obviously Christians, and they were speaking the truth about Jesus, that he's the son of God, the savior of the world. And then one person called in and said, these people who think that Jesus is the son of God, they're out of their minds, they're crazy. And so the host said, well, who do you think Jesus was? And the person confidently said, that's easy. He was an alien from outer space. If we took the time, we could look at a hundred other opinions about Jesus, and many of you have heard a lot of them. Which one is right? How do we arrive at a right opinion about Jesus when there are so many varied opinions about him? You know how? We follow the counsel of Nicodemus, and we listen to Jesus himself, and we get our view of Jesus from Jesus. That's the only safe place from which we ought to get our view of him. Nicodemus' counsel to give Jesus a fair hearing means that we are to let Jesus speak for himself and let him say all that he wants to say. And then we are to weigh all that he reveals about himself through his words and through his deeds. And I need to also add that the first step To giving Jesus a fair hearing is for us to admit that we are not able to give Jesus a fair hearing. Because we are all naturally truth suppressors. And we should ask God to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again so that we can hear Jesus as we should. In fact, real quickly, go back to John chapter 3, verse 8. I want to show you something that Jesus says to Nicodemus that has abundant bearing on the counsel Nicodemus gives in our passage today. Back in John 3 8, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says, the wind, and this is the same Greek word for spirit, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear Underline that word here. You hear the sound or the voice of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The point Jesus is making to Nicodemus here in John 3.8 is that just as we can't see the wind or control it, but we can hear it, so it is true that those who are born of the Spirit of the Spirit of God, can actually hear the voice of the Spirit. They may not be able to see the Spirit or fully understand how the Spirit's always working, but they can hear His voice and recognize the Spirit's voice when He speaks. And part of the reason they can hear it is because they're not trying to suppress it. They want to hear it. Because God has accomplished a miracle in them of causing them to be born again so that they now have the ears to hear the Spirit and a heart that's ready for whatever the Spirit says. And they, those who are born again, are the only ones who are able to give Jesus truly a fair hearing. Given what Jesus taught Nicodemus about hearing the Spirit in John 3, Verse 8, it's not surprising at all that we come to John seven fifty one. back to our passage today. And Nicodemus is talking about hearing, saying to his comrades, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Nicodemus, I believe, is saying exactly the right thing here. The truth is, he isn't so much seeking to win these men to Christ as much as he's wanting to give Christ the opportunity to win these men to himself. So all Nicodemus is trying to do here is to get these men to listen to Jesus and give them a fair hearing, knowing Jesus can handle the rest. And that's my burden for myself and for all of us here this morning Guys, don't listen to what other people say about Jesus and be content to just get your opinion of Jesus from them. Don't listen to those who will try to belittle you or embarrass you out of a right perspective of Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Open your Bible and read Jesus' words, for his words are the words of eternal life, and be humble enough to admit as you're reading, that you're not even able to listen as you ought. And so ask God to repent or to do a miracle of life in you and give you the ears to hear Jesus as you ought. Confess your inability to hear and ask him to help you. And also ask God to help you, if you look again at verse 51, to know what he is doing. As Nicodemus counsels in verse 51, and then look at the deeds that Jesus performed. Observe the way he healed the sick and raised the dead and gave sight to the blind. Observe the way he loved sinners and treated them with both grace and with truth. And observe how he willingly went to the cross and laid down his life to provide atonement for sinners like you and me. And then observe how Jesus took up his life again on the third day after his death and came forth from the tomb in power. Open your Bible and truly hear from Jesus and come to know what he has done and what he is doing now in providing a free gift of salvation to all who would come to him and believe in him. And observe how Jesus is delighted to give the forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. And then come to the only right conclusion about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that he is truly the fountain of living waters. And then come to him and drink of him and believe in him for the Messiah that he is. And if you've never done that before, I urge you to do that today, even right now, where you are seated. Because at the end of the day, guys, it's not enough to just have any sort of hot take on Jesus. You must have the right take on Jesus. And Only Jesus can give you that. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I just confess this morning that I, even as a believer, I see the instinct in me to be a truth suppressor. And even those of us who are born of you, Lord, we need an ongoing miracle in us to be able to hear as we should. And that's why throughout the New Testament and the book of Revelation, we're just repeatedly told, let him who has ears to hear, hear. We're called to hear, but our hearing is not always what it ought to be. Lord, do a good work in in me and in all of us that would just open our hearts and open our ears wide and that we would make the Lord Jesus the supreme object of our study and that we would delight to hear all that he has to say and to come to know all that he has done and is doing. And for us to arrive at an ever more seasoned appraisal of him that is being shaped and informed by what we hear and what we see coming from him. If there's any in this room this morning, Lord, that have never come to faith in Jesus and, and drank deeply of him and experienced the forgiveness of their sins, through his shed blood at the cross, I pray that you would perform that miracle today, even in the quietness of this moment, Lord, that they would cry out to you and call upon your name for salvation, knowing that you would be pleasured to save and forgive. As we all, Lord, go out into our world week by week, including this week. We live in a fallen world where there. Is false teaching and lies and deceptions everywhere. May we not be deceived. And help us to speak truth to others. And call people. To hear from you, Jesus, and to know what you are doing. And as we do this, Lord, that we as a congregation, joining together with many other congregations here in Riverside and throughout California and throughout this nation and throughout this world, would shine as the light. That you have called us to be a light that enables others to see the truth about our glorious Savior. We ask these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.